0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. So you've got some problems with your tonsils or maybe a bit of trouble breathing through your nose. You go to the GP, you get referred to a specialist. They warn you, hey, it might take a while to get in, like seven years. What? Waiting times to see specialists have blown out in Australia. So many of you are giving up because it's taking so long, and experts are warning it's putting lives at risk. We know you're struggling to get into GPs, but there is some really worrying new reports out about the wait for specialists. We're going to get into that later. Also coming up, you're going to hear from a former Future Generations commissioner, You're like, what is that? Well, it's a person whose whole job it is to look out for young people, even those who haven't been born yet, and to advise the government on it. We've got a former Future Generations Commissioner. Actually, the first in the world will be joining us very soon. First, though.
0: Hack. If we can help our youth step into the spotlight to try and speak through the Youth Council so that finally our youth has a voice.
1: On Triple Jack. We know lowering the voting age gets people fired up. Like you've got those saying, oh, we should do it. If young Australians are old enough to drive or apply for the army, then they should be able to vote. And then there are those who say, nah, keep it just as it is. Well, what if I told you about an election in Australia where 11-year-olds were voting? Because that's about to happen in one North Queensland town, or kind of. It's part of a new program and it could be rolled out in other parts of Australia because, let's face it, a lot of our elected officials are getting on a bit. Angel Parsons has been talking to people in Mackay to find out what's going on here. Good afternoon,
2: citizens of Mackay Council Members and fellow candidates. Good
3: afternoon. I'm running to become a representative for the Northern Suburb. And
2: running for a seat in the Northern Beach. I'm 13 years old and I'm running for the Northern Suburbs. Bringing
3: Suburban in mental BG. health advocates to sporting clubs. If
2: elected, issues I want to focus on include
4: limited learning and entertainment opportunities compared to capital cities. So this might transport you back to high school debating club, but these kids are actually campaigning for real votes in a kind of real election.
3: Um,
2: it's not only the first town hall meeting for Mackay, but it's also the first ever young mayor's town hall meeting for all of Australia, which is really cool. This
4: is Savannah Vella from the Foundation for Young Australians.
2: Based on like their passion alone, I feel like some great things are going to come out of this program. Mental health has been a big thing and as a young person myself, um, this is something that's really important to me too. The foundation has partnered with the Council in Mackay to set up a program where kids can run as young
4: councillors, people who can advise the elected representatives on things that matter to young people. But youth councils aren't new. You've probably got one in your town run by a community group or even funded by council. I spoke to Kara
2: Juzi from the Mackay Regional Council. How this is significantly different from any other youth councils that currently exist or have existed in the past is that this is the first youth council that will ever be democratically elected by young people. So it is following a very similar path as a normal campaign process where young people had to nominate themselves, they're running
4: campaigns. And the Electoral Commission of Queensland is even helping to run next month's election. Um, My name's Bridget Wright. And Bridget, can I ask how old you are? I'm 16.
0: What made you want to get involved with a program like this? Oh, I think just really, like, being able to share my opinion and my voice, like, as a young person and my perspective, because there are so many issues that young people go through that I just feel like kind of get, like, kind of ignored or, like, pushed aside by um, the governments. And we don't really have anything to do in these regional areas. We've got maybe, like, an old skate park. As a youth council, I reckon we could be able to address the issues that our youth has in our area. I believe that our main issue is like mental health and not being able to speak out on what we personally feel like is a major issue. If this new model goes well, it could
4: roll out to other locations. And the council says this is one way it can try to address a pretty big problem that exists in all governments when it comes to getting political outcomes that benefit young people. Representation. We elect council members, they might be from differing backgrounds, but very rarely are they from a young people background. Like, is it an issue within councils to know really what young people are thinking and feeling and want out of council? Is that a struggle?
2: It is, um, and, I, it, and our councillors would say that, that they don't necessarily know the right pathways to speak with young people Um, but that doesn't mean they don't want to hear from them. This is also a really great opportunity to introduce young people to democratic processes earlier, how to vote, what that even looks like. This will introduce young people to that process earlier and this will give an opportunity to actually put their hand up and be part of the process you know and if that results in um, the age demographic of future councillors being brought down with younger people putting their hand up because they've been introduced to the processes earlier, that can only be a great thing. And here's the top
4: dog himself, Mayor Greg Williamson. Why Mackay? Why not Mackay? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) crikey. I asked him, how can we be sure stuff like this isn't just tokenistic? This is gonna be far from tokenistic. This is a proper election. There's 21 candidates, for 12 positions, they're going to run a campaign. They're not gonna do this for no reason. He's certain it'll lead to actual change, whether that's with youth crime, mental health, or increasing opportunities for regional kids, and should be a thing elsewhere. We've got a voice that's going to be heard by your local council, by local people in the elected environment, and that voice will mean something. So absolutely, it's gotta to go towards contributing, not just lowering the youth crime, but it's, it's actually building up the youth of the region young people will be able to talk young people's language and say, look, to make this happen, these are the things that we've got to follow, these are the things that are going to pre- uh, preclude it, and I think
1: it'll be a great outcome.
4: Hack on Triple J
1: yeah really interesting angel parsons with that story from mackay when you think of local government councils you might automatically think of really old people screaming about extensions to properties and garbage pickup times and stuff like that but the thing is there are actually a few young people getting into local government at a really young age one of them is liam hughes now liam's a councillor in frankston in victoria he was elected when he was just 18 years old He's now 21 and he's already the deputy mayor. Liam, welcome to HACK.
3: Thank you very much for having me, Dave.
1: Are people often surprised when they find out you're a deputy mayor and you're only 21? Yes.
3: <laughs> it doesn't really come up in conversation much because I don't like to fluff my own pillows, but oh, okay. when it does come up, they, He's pretty they get taken humble
1: He's pretty humble. Yeah. I mean, how hard was it when you started out in local government? As a young person in politics, did you find that initially your opinions were often not listened to at first or the older councillors were a bit patronising? Yeah, it's
3: a, it's a rough world. And I think it sort of hurts the other councillors because the, they think... Uh, um, one of their colleagues is a child and in, they've earned this position throughout their campaign and yet they have to work with the child. So I think that's what a lot of them have the mindset of is I'm better than this, why do I have to work with the child?
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Do you reckon you've been able to make a real difference specifically because of your age, Liam? Like are there things that you've done while you've been on council that you think, wow, that was just because it was my youth perspective that I was able to bring that?
3: I, w- I, do, I do think so because as you get older, you get more stubborn and more your way or the highway. And as a young person, I can, I, when I go out to the community, I can listen to them and, and it's not just, oh, I've always done it this way in my life Then we have to do it this way. I get to actually go, hang on, let's see what's out there. And I'm, I'm not stuck in my old ways like the others. Oh,
1: I'm glad to Catholic. hear that. Um, so you'd recommend it for other young people? What would you say to people who might want to go out and explore a career in local government?
3: Yeah, uh, go for it. It's um, it's a wild world. The more the more young people actually do it, the easier it's going to become, because currently it's very uh, disincentivizing for a young person in that position and the way you're sometimes treated. But the more people doing it, the easier it's just going to come. And when the uh, when the old um, grumpy people cock it, we're going to be the future. So we need to actually do it
1: now. <laughs> I mean, yeah, to put it bluntly, I guess that is true, yeah. Liam. Hey, if you're Deputy Mayor at 21, I just want to ask you, what are you, what are your goals for 30? I'm wondering where you're hoping to be in another few years, probably, you know, leader of the country or something? <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, Um. maybe. I think <laughs> just, I've earned a lot, but maybe I think I'm going to get into the private sector and maybe... Later in life, I'll get back to politics.
1: Hey, you've got it all sorted out. I mean, um, you're much more switched on than many of us. With a few more years on the board, Frankston Deputy Mayor Liam Hughes, really appreciate you coming on Hack and breaking that down. Um, it was really nice talking to you.
3: My pleasure, Dave. Thank you very much. Hack, young people are definitely a lot more engaged, and I think it's because we have a very future-focused kind of outlook. On Triple J.
1: Yeah, you'd like to think all politicians are thinking about future generations when they're making big decisions, but as we know, it doesn't always turn out like that. And as we just heard, that's why we need more young people in politics to get that representation up. But what about representation for people who haven't even been born yet, the future generations? seven years ago sophie Howe became the world's first ever future generations commissioner in wales she was responsible for advising the welsh government on all sorts of things including climate and i'm happy to say sophie's not only in australia but she's right here in the studio with me now. Sophie Howe, welcome to Hack.
5: Thank you very much for having me.
1: It's so, such a pleasure to talk to you. I've, I've been reading so much about you. <laughs> a future generations commissioner sounds revolutionary now. Like uh-huh. speaking to Australians, they're probably, whoa, mind blown a bit. <laughs> Seven years ago, it must have been a massive shake up. How did it come about?
5: Well, Wales has had kind of quite a long, you know, history of dabbling, shall I say, in like sustainable development. How do we think, you know, to the long term? How do we make sure we're tackling the environment? Um, Making sure we're making connections between like what we do on the economy and how that might impact on the environment. But we never really nailed it. And so there was a real kind of frustration in Wales that, you know, we might say we're doing this stuff, but we're not really. And we need to actually have some more specific legal duties on our government and others to make sure that they're thinking, in the interests of future generations and acting. Act so how did you get into the position? How did that come about? So it was um, what we call a public appointments process. So it wasn't, a, I'm not an elected official. I'm an appointed, um, or I was an appointed um, official. So um, appointed by a cross-party uh, panel of parliamentarians in the um, in the Welsh Parliament. Um, and my role is independent of government. Um, so my job is to hold them to account on how they act in the interests of future generations.
1: Very interesting. How far into... To the future were you looking like people born when
5: yeah well it's different for different things if we're talking about environment policy you know we plant a tree today um or we plant a forest today and that's you know potentially going to be uh you know a policy decision or an action which is going to take you hundreds or 200 years into the future likewise the way in which we think about building homes Um, some of the homes that we all live in today were built you know certainly in the uk more than 100 years ago so we need to be able we can't complete Predict can we what future generations are going to want? But we know there are some like pretty big um, and obvious things. Like we need to be building homes and infrastructure that are going to be um, low carbon or carbon neutral. They're going to need to be able to adapt to the consequences of climate change. We're going to have an aging population, so we need our homes and our infrastructure to cater to that aging population. Everything's going digital, so how are we thinking about sort of building in things in in that way? So different timescales depending on what you're, you're looking at. But a minimum, really, of looking to the next generation, which we say is a minimum of 25 years. Wow, okay. So you were
1: giving advice. Was it uh, compulsory for the government to accept that advice?
5: So I couldn't force anyone to do anything or stop anyone doing anything. But there was a real power in almost being this having this public platform as the conscience of of future generations. And where I intervened um, in decisions that the government were about to take, we've seen them reverse those decisions. So, for example, they wanted to spend the entire of their borrowing budget on building um, a 13-mile stretch of motorway. And I said, that's not climate fit. That's not future generations fit. It doesn't help with our health, it increases air pollution, um, and they changed the decision. They're investing in public transport instead.
1: Wow. So you actually, you know, changed something that was going to go ahead. You said it's not best practice for the future Mm -hmm. and for future generations, Mm -hmm. and they scrapped it.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And the other, lots of really exciting things starting to change in Wales. But one of the things I'm most excited about is changes to our school curriculum. So what our young people are actually learning in schools. And uh, the purpose is now for the school curriculum in Wales is to develop healthy, active and confident learners, creative um, and enterprising contributors and ethical and informed citizens. Now, that is like super cool in terms of what the next generation, um, you know, how they're going to act differently to current generations. Wales actually lowered the voting age, Mm -hmm. yeah, didn't it? So so is it 16-year-olds can vote in Wales now? Is that what it is? Yeah, 16-year-olds can vote in Wales. And I've been really excited this afternoon to hear about um, uh, the launch of a campaign here in Australia, Make It 16. So um, do look that up and um, get behind that campaign. Um, It happened, the first vote for 16-year-olds happened during COVID. So that's not ideal because we didn't have probably all of like the education and all Mm. of the public around it. So the turnout wasn't that great, but we're hoping that the next election, um, you know, seen as we're out of COVID and so on, that we'll be able to have a much greater focus on that.
1: Really interesting. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Sophie Howe, who is the first Future Generations Commissioner for Wales and a lot of interesting things that she's been able to explore in that role and, and take to the rest of the world. Sophie, we've seen a big increase in the number of climate change lawsuits around the world in recent years. Even here in Australia, there was Mm. a big one. Do you think that that's a positive sign that there is this greater awareness of future generations and it's getting a bit more publicity?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it is positive, but it does really worry me that kind of, you know, governments uh, in, in some cases, uh, and I think the case in Australia, are actually saying, no, we don't have um, or we shouldn't have a kind of legal obligation to protect the climate for future generations, which is just crazy. That, to me, says how broken our system is in terms of us just taking short term decisions, um, only acting in the interests of, of current generations or current older generations in many cases, and not take into account the the views and the futures of our young people.
1: Did you have a lot of pushback? Like we've got a message in here saying Wales has a big coal history. Mm. Did Sophie have pushback Mm. from from those people?
5: Well, we had a very strong history with coal. The first million pound cheque for coal was signed um, in Cardiff, our capital city. Um, But actually what um, we have developed since then, particularly since we've had our own Welsh government, is quite a progressive new approach. So we are at the forefront of the Industrial Revolution. We now want to I suppose pay back um, to the world, recognising our role in that kind of carbon-intensive industry, and say actually we have a role now in being at the forefront of a low-carbon well-being revolution, and that's part of what our law is all about in Wales.
1: It's really interesting, Sophie. There's a study out in Australia today that's found one in four Australians between the ages of 15 and 19 were very or extremely concerned about climate change Mm -hmm. and nearly two in five of those people also experienced high psychological distress. Mm -hmm. It's really showing Mm -hmm. the connection there. When do you think political leaders around the world are going to start to really listen and act on this?
5: Well, I think that, you know, we keep seeing um, world leaders turning up at uh, conferences on climate ch- climate change and making commitments and then coming back the following year without having delivered um, an awful lot at all. And we're heading for, you know, some... Um, you know serious serious problems and that's why I think having laws across the world perhaps similar to what we've done in Wales and one of the really exciting things actually is based on the Welsh example the United Nations now are proposing a declaration for future generations and the appointment of a UN special envoy for future generations which is kind of like a UN equivalent of my role Um, because unless they're legally bound to take action um, you know what we've seen so far is that they're they're not and what we will end up seeing is when these crises happen um, and we're already seeing them flooding Mm. fire um, you know all of people's livelihoods lives being devastated by the effects of climate change that's here in australia that's the same in wales even worse in the global south people who can you know less able to cope with that but until it's really hitting our economy, hitting jobs, I don't think without legal obligations, politicians will be acting on it in any way um, uh, close to the sense of urgency that they need to be. Yeah,
1: right. I mean, it's interesting to hear that other countries around the world are now, consider- and the UN is considering mm. similar positions to yours. Sophie, you've been speaking with young people in Australia. You mentioned mm-hmm. some of uh, you know, your work here. How have you found it? Like, Do you feel young Australians, speaking with them, they're as politically engaged, as young people in Wales. How are you finding young people here?
5: Oh, absolutely. And you know, what I find wherever I go really is that there are these real common threads of the issues that really matter to young people. Climate, we're right at the top of the agenda. Um, always issues about mental health, concerns about housing and you know, the affordability and accessibility of housing, um, and um, you know, lots of concern about the kind of education system and whether the education system is preparing them not just for a job, and I'd argue you in many cases not even doing that about jobs for the future but preparing them for you know for life if you like so i you know seen so many passionate young people over the last few days i went yesterday to the first intergenerational uh, fairness summit held in um, in melbourne and i think there's a real movement growing here amongst young people and others in australia perhaps with the starting point being the treasurer's proposals for what we call a well-being budgeting a well-being budget how do we look at things beyond the importance of economic growth, because that's one of the things that's actually causing climate change. So there's a real potential there, I think, with your new political environment and so on here in Australia to perhaps get some of these matters on the agenda. And I think the people I've met have been pretty inspired by the Welsh approach and might be proposing something similar.
1: Hey, good to hear it. It's kind of fascinating to get a perspective from someone who's outside the country as well, mm-hmm. someone who can come in and say, Oh, look, this is my gauge on it. Mm-hmm. Sophie Howe, sustainability wellbeing advisor, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with us on Hack. Thank you.
4: Hack. The difference between being seen promptly Or waiting a long time is the difference between life and death and we're seeing that constantly being played out. Well if you're finding it harder than ever to find a medical specialist you're not alone. Some Australians are languishing on waiting lists for longer than six years to see crucial specialists
5: including neurosurgeons. People waiting to see an eye specialist who can't see properly. I see a lot of women with pelvic pain from endometriosis who wait years. It affects their relationships,
3: their ability to work.
5: One of the things that this information highlighted was that outpatient wait times are an issue across the country. Mm. It's prompted a warning from one doctor that some Australians could die
3: while waiting for care.
0: That's one issue we need to grapple with. Better understanding the demand, where demand's exceeding supply in the private health sector as well as the public health system. It's been insanely
4: frustrating. It's like as if they've just forgotten about me.
1: On Triple J... Yeah, if you're told you've got to see a specialist, like a neurosurgeon or an immunologist, chances are you need some pretty serious attention, right? But as we're hearing today, people are struggling to get in. The wait times are ridiculous. You've told us you're struggling to get access to GPs, but what about a specialist? How long would you expect to wait? Six months? A year? What about six years? Some Australians are waiting even longer than that to see ear, nose, and throat surgeons, dermatologists. Is that you? How long have you been waiting to see a specialist, and have you given up altogether? Tell me, you can message in 0439757555. One of my colleagues here at the ABC has been diving right into this and it's been hard because the data is a bit all over the place. It's not something that's easy to research. She's with us now in our Parliament House studio, ABC political reporter Stephanie Dalzell. Thanks for coming on Hack.
0: Thanks for having me, Dave.
1: These wait times seem wild, like people waiting years and years and years. Can you take us through what you've found here?
0: Yeah, it's pretty hard to comprehend, isn't it, that people are waiting so long? So these figures are for public outpatient specialist waiting times. So basically, the clinics at public hospitals set up with public specialists. And these are often called the hidden waiting list because they detail the waits for the first appointment with a specialist in the public system, but not the period of time from that appointment to the next appointment or to elective surgeries. Those are different waiting times altogether. So these are just... The wait just for the, the first time to see a public specialist so we analyze the figures in the states where they're available in victoria some people are waiting more than eight years to see ear nose and throat surgeons wow. longer than seven years to see immunologists and dermatologists in parts of south australia doctors like gastroenterologists and ophthalmologists come with lists least as long as five years in tasmania some people are waiting longer than six years to see brain surgeons that's Even crazy. the ca- it, it's pretty hard to comprehend. Even the cases deemed urgent, which are recommended to be seen within 30 days, some of those people are waiting longer than two years to see brain surgeons. So, it's it's pretty hard to to, to comprehend that.
1: So, just to be clear, Steph, you're saying this is the wait um, before you see the specialist for the first time, but there could be another wait after that for whatever appointment comes later.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, this is just the wait to see the public specialist just for your first appointment. Wow. You could wait again for a second appointment, and you'll likely wait a long time. After that, if you then have to go onto the elective surgery waiting list, which a lot of people do have to do after seeing public specialists at outpatient clinics.
1: And I would think, Steph, that heaps of young people don't have private health insurance, so they're going to be really impacted by this shortage of public specialists. Can you tell us about some of the people you have been speaking with who've been waiting for a long time?
0: Yeah, so I spoke to someone exactly in that basket um, because what we're talking about here are public waiting times, although it's worth noting that waits for private specialists are also lengthy, but not in the kind of (laughs) eight-year... basket um one of the people i spoke to lindsay her name is she's got endometriosis which is where tissue that's similar to the lining of the uterus grows outside of the uterus it's often debilitating very painful she's been waiting two years just for a first appointment with a public gynaecologist in sydney she can't afford to see a private specialist she doesn't have private health insurance But she said that she's been scrounging around basically trying to find any bit of spare change to try to save up the money so she can try to go private because she's been waiting two years with no end in sight, like two years having sent her referral multiple times and she hasn't heard anything. So it's not even like two years and your appointment's booked in for a year. It's like two years and we we have no idea when you're going to see this uh, gynecologist. And she said in the interim, she's ended up in hospital with severe pain and she's really been struggling.
1: I just, I, I think that there'd be a lot of people who are giving up altogether and just thinking it's not worth it. Are there other parts of Australia that are worse off than others, Steph?
0: Well, that is a very good question, Dave. And it's, it's very hard for me to tell you because yeah. the data can't be compared. It's measured differently. So Victoria looks at uh, what they call the 90th percentile wait times, which is the time it takes to see 90% of patients. So 10% of patients are waiting longer. So when we talk about... The eight years in parts of Victoria, that was at one health service in Victoria, 10% of people are waiting longer than the eight years. Tasmania uses 75th percentile. South Australia uses maximum time. So it's all different. And some states don't even publish this data. New South Wales doesn't. WA hasn't since 2017. The ACT and the Northern Territory don't. And that's part of the problem. There's no way of knowing how long people are actually waiting for care. And the Royal Australasian College of Physicians has called for better data just so that we have some kind of idea about how long people are waiting, not just in the public system, but in the private system too. I spoke to Professor Graeme Stewart from the Westmead Institute for Medical Research, and he said regardless of how this data is collected, waiting six, seven, eight years to see a specialist is simply too long. Take a listen.
4: If they're not dying whilst they're waiting, the the delay may alter the outcome to be the difference between life and death. The most obvious examples of that would be somebody with a cancer where if caught early and uh, managed early, uh, can be cured. If caught late and managed late, it eventually causes death.
1: You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese speaking with ABC political reporter Steph Dalzell about this big story she's been exploring on waiting times for specialists. Got a lot of messages coming through on this one. Someone says, I was on the wait list to get my tonsils out on the public system for eight years. Don't tell me that because I'm actually waiting to get my tonsils out. So looking forward to that big long wait. Another person, my partner's been waiting for an ENT appointment for five years. We're told we can't update our address on the list because we'll be back to square one. They didn't get their tonsils out as a child and now have chronic issues. And another person, I'm a first year medical student and I can tell you that unless the government's willing to assist universities to offer more med positions and fund hospitals to offer more places to interns at the end of medical school, this problem's going to go nowhere. So Steph, what's the government had to say? Have you spoken to the health minister?
0: Yeah, so we went to the federal health minister, Mark Butler's office In a statement he conceded long wait times did have a serious impact on people's health and he argued that the federal government was focused on boosting the health workforce and he also noted that they're reviewing the agreement on public hospital funding with states and territories. So it used to be a 45-55 split. With the states picking up 55%, it was changed to 50-50 during the pandemic, and now that's being reviewed. The states want it permanently increased to 50-50, and they also uh, want a change to the the cap on growth. It's the way the government really puts the brakes on extra spending. We also spoke to the states which published data for comment, all of them argue that they're working to improve waiting lists and specialist shortages, and some even pointed to improvements, believe it or not, in the waiting time. So South Australia, for example, we've seen some improvements in in terms of coming down from seven years to five years in some specialties over the last three months. So some states pointed to those improvements.
1: Right, OK. Well, look, I mean, it's obviously it's something that needs a lot of attention because, as we've heard, people's lives are at risk and so many people are affected. We're looking at the text line now. We appreciate you looking into this, taking the time to explain it to us. ABC political reporter Steph Darzell, thanks for joining us on Hack.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: And so many messages coming through. Reese says the numbers don't look bad if you don't publish them. He's got a point there. And that is all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. A huge, huge show today. Looking forward to the shake-up tomorrow. I'll catch you then. See ya. Hack on Triple Jack.